Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. One of the most debated issues among Christians is the topic of predestination versus free will. Today, John brings a very helpful message from God's Word titled, How Can I Better Understand Election and Predestination? You know, sometime a person will come up to me and say, John, I, I just want you to know I am reformed in my theology. And I want to say to them, we're in a Protestant church. We're all Reformed in our theology. What do you mean? There's nothing special about you being Reformed in your theology. But when I say I'm Reformed and they say they're Reformed, they're talking about two different things. When I say I'm Reformed in my theology, that means that the basic teachings and tenets of the Protestant Reformation from the 1500s is what I believe. Back then, the established church used to teach that in order to have your sins forgiven... You come to the church and you buy indulgences and you could pay for your sins to be forgiven. The established church back in that day used to teach that the way to go to heaven was through good works and good deeds. And so a guy like Martin Luther, who has been raised in that environment, whose heart is sensitive to the things of God, says, I want to go to heaven, and so I better do some good deeds. And when I do wrong, I better go down to the church and pay and buy some indulgences so the priest can forgive my sins and Luther prayed for hours at a time. He would fast for days on end. He would sin and feel so badly for his sins that he would get a whip and beat himself until he bled, thinking that maybe God would forgive his sins based on that. He became a monk. He was so sincere about God. He devoted his life to the church and became a monk. One day Martin Luther was reading out of Romans chapter 1 and he read that passage that says, The just shall live by faith. Say that with me. The just shall live by faith. And his eyes were open and the light came on and he said, That's it. I'm not saved by praying three hours a day. I'm not saved by fasting. I'm not saved by doing good works. I'm saved by repenting of my sins, asking Jesus to save me, and trusting him to do it. And in a moment, Luther was converted, and the Protestant Reformation was on. And from that moment on, Luther, with others, began to teach that what the established church of that day had been teaching was not right. And they came up with what are known as five tenets of the Protestant Reformation. There were more than five, but the five big ones are this. Number one, Scripture is our authority for life. Our authority for life is not what we believe. You know, it says in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They said, we're our own authority. There's a way that seems right. Let's just do that. But the Scripture says that ends in death. And in the day in which we live, there are many who are their own authority. If something feels good, looks good, seems right, just do it, man. You're your own authority. You answer to no one. Luther said, no, that's not true. Scripture's our authority. But he also meant by that the traditions of the church are not our authority. The only way the traditions of the church have any meaning is if the traditions of the church match the Word of God. But in the day in which Luther lived, what the church was teaching, what the church was practicing, was in opposition to the Word of God. Interestingly, back then, common people, the people who sat in the pews, normal people, working people, they didn't even have a Bible. And if they had one, they couldn't read it. It was in Latin. 
So they would have to go to the church and the minister would tell them what God said and they were dependent upon the minister to know what God had said. And Luther said, this is not right. We have to have it where common people can read the Bible in their own language. The scripture is our authority for living. And so the first emphasis of the Protestant Reformation, they said, sola scriptura, scripture alone is our authority for living. And then they said, as it pertains to our salvation, the church can't save, the pastor can't save, the priest can't save. No, we're saved, listen to this, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, we all believe that. That's out of Ephesians chapter 2. And then the next thing they would teach, and our salvation is for the glory of God. So when I say I'm reformed in my theology, that's what I mean. Scripture is my authority for living. I believe I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and my salvation is for the glory of God. I didn't do anything to earn it. He just gave me that gift of salvation. But when the fellow comes up and says to me, John, I want you to know I'm reformed in my theology, that's not what he means. Not today. What he means by that is that he is a five-point Calvinist. You say, what in the world is a five-point Calvinist? Well, back during the Reformation day, not only did you have Martin Luther leading in that movement, but you had a man named John Calvin. And let me say this about John Calvin. He was a good and godly man. I deeply respect the ministry of John Calvin. Many of the things I've learned about God, I have learned from John Calvin. John Calvin was known for his emphasis on the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. God is absolutely in control. And he especially taught that when it came to human salvation, to a person being saved. He emphasized election and predestination. After Calvin died, his followers took his teachings and they began to organize them and they began to categorize them and they came up with what is known as the five points of Calvinism. Some of you are five-point Calvinists. Some of you aren't. It's interesting nonetheless. The five points of Calvinism spell, you can make an acrostic out of the word tulip, T-U-L-I-P, and that's what they made John's, John Calvin's teachings to be, tulip. And so let's just walk through that briefly. The T stands for total depravity, that before God we are sinful, lost creatures. We are totally depraved. There's nothing good in us. I read that, teaching on total depravity. I say, put a check mark by that. I believe in it. The U stands for unconditional election. That is, that God has chosen us to be a part of his family. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And he has chosen us not because we were good, because the Bible says there's none who's good. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God didn't choose us because we were good. God chose us because he loved us. And so I read about unconditional election. I say, put a check by that. I don't understand it, by the way. I don't understand all about election, predestination, but I believe that. It's in the Bible. Put a check by that. L, what does it stand for? L stands for limited atonement. And by limited atonement, what those followers of Calvin meant was that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he only died for certain people. He didn't die for everybody's sins. He only died for the sins of certain people. His atonement was limited. Now, when I read that, when I study that, I begin to raise a flag, and I say, no, I don't know about that. I don't know if I can go along with that. I'm going to come back in a moment and talk more fully about limited atonement, but let me say at the outset of this message today, 
and you and I may disagree, and that's fine. I do not believe in limited atonement. I believe when Jesus Christ died on that cross, he died for the sins of the whole world. So I have a problem. I, I, I can't go with limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. What does this mean? It means if a person has been chosen by God to be saved, that person will be saved. Grace is irresistible. You can't say no to God's grace. And they would take a verse like John chapter 6, verse 37, where Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the person who comes to me, I'll in no wise cast out. And they would teach from that irresistible grace. Say, John, what do you believe on irresistible grace? Well, I think probably irresistible grace is true. And when we get to heaven, we'll say, well, it was true. But the problem I have with irresistible grace is that it implies, it, it implies that a person has no free will, that a person can't choose. It minimizes many of the followers of Calvin. What they were doing, they were trying so desperately to maximize the sovereignty of God, which we should all do, that they at the same time minimize the responsibility of man. On irresistible grace, I think about passages in the Bible where God said, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. God was saying a person can hear the gospel, a person can come to church and hear the proclamation of Christ and fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and yet a person can harden their heart. So irresistible grace, in all honesty, I'm not saying that it's not true. We get to heaven, we may find out that it is. I just have to put a question mark by that and say, the thing I'm concerned with on that is it de-emphasizes human responsibility. And then the P stands for the perseverance of the saints. In other words, if a person has truly been saved, they will endure to the end. The Bible says those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, let me be quick to say, we're not saved because we endure to the end. But if we have truly been saved, we will endure to the end. It's just the eternal security of the believer. The old Baptist way, once saved, always saved. I believe that. So I put a check mark by the P. Now, as that was being developed by Calvin's followers, there was another man who was a good and godly Christian named Jacobus Arminius. And Arminius began to study the teachings of Calvin, and he looked at them quite differently. And with the exception of total depravity, he couldn't go along with Calvin on much of anything. When it came to unconditional election, he said, I don't believe that. When he came to limited atonement, I don't believe that. When he came to the uh, irresistible grace, he said, I don't believe that. And if you study what Arminius believed on the perseverance of the saints, it's not clear what he believed. <laughs> you can't tell, at least I can't, whether or not he believed a person could lose their salvation or not. He wasn't clear on that. So I look at these two things. You have Calvin over here and you have Arminius over here. And for the last 500 years, most theologians have leaned more in one direction or another. I have friends on both sides. That I have five-point Calvinist friends. I have friends on the other side who are as far away from that as they can possibly be. And that's why I say it's not the test of fellowship. I want to come back in another sermon and talk about how in the 1700s in England, George Whitfield, the great preacher who led in the, the Great Awakening there in England, he was a five-point Calvinist. John Wesley, their contemporaries, they're the best of friends. He was not a five-point Calvinist at all. He preached free grace that anybody could be saved. So you have these differing views, and we're trying to figure out today well, what does the Bible say? Now, I want to say this. My concern with 
approaching Scripture from a theological system like that is if many people who are five-point Calvinists or even a four- or three-point Calvinist, or maybe they're Arminian, what they do is they take their theological lens and they read the Bible through that lens. And so they're looking for Calvinism. They're looking for that. The Arminian is looking for what he's looking for. And this is what I love about true Reformation theology. A person saying, I'm truly Reformed. Friend, listen, we don't start with the theological system. We start with the Word of God. We don't let the theological system affect how we read the Word of God. We let the Word of God affect how we look at the theological system. Sola Scriptura. It is Scripture alone. That is our authority. Now, in Acts chapter 1, we've been studying, or we did two weeks ago, about the life of Judas Iscariot, and we saw how he betrayed Jesus. Today, we're right back in that same passage, and the question we're trying to answer today is this, was Judas Iscariot predestined to betray Jesus? Some say he was. Some think everything is predestined. Well, let's look at it. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, Altogether, the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. You might want to underline that phrase. This scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For Judas was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of his iniquity of his sin. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails, all his intestines came out. Judas committed suicide. Horrible end that he had. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one have it, let no one live in it, and let another take his office. And so some read that. They read these quotes from the Psalms, those verses, Psalm 69, 25, Psalm 109, verse 8, and they say, well, there it is. Judas was predestined to betray Jesus because the Old Testament said that it would happen. And God's even writing about it uh, as though it already had Happen. Let me give you another verse. There's more than that. Psalm 41, verse 9. Listen to what David said. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David saying there was a friend in his life and something happened and that relationship was broken and this friend whom David had trusted and eaten meals with and had communion with, this guy turns against David and he lifts up his heel against David and David feels as though he's been betrayed. Well, in John chapter 13, in verse 18, hundreds of years later, Jesus is in the upper room in, in Jerusalem with his disciples on the night before the crucifixion, and he takes Psalm 41, verse 9, what David had said about his friend. Jesus applies it to himself and Judas, and it's obvious this was a messianic prophecy. John 13, 18, Jesus said, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen but that the Scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And so some say, well, there you have it. The Bible is declaring hundreds of years before Jesus was born, before Judas was born, that one day Judas would betray Jesus. And they say, therefore, Judas was predestined to, to betray Jesus. And friend, I say to you, that is wrong. Judas was not predestined to betray Jesus. 
Nobody is predestined to sin. God would never predestine anybody to do something that is against his own will. That would be against his own nature and against his own heart. You say, yeah, John, but hundreds of years in advance, God wrote about it in the past tense. Judas couldn't help it. Think about this. Hundreds of years in advance, God knew what would happen. We know that God knows everything that will ever happen in the future. And so God's back here in eternity past, and God's looking out there, and God knows that one day Judas would betray Jesus, and so God just writes it down as in the past tense. Think about this. God is the only person who can write about future events in the past tense, and yet his doing that in no way limited or minimized Judas's free will. Judas still had a choice. Judas still had a decision to make, and he made the wrong decision. Now, you're in Acts 1. Look in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, something very similar, that we see here the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. You say, John, which one is it? It's not either or. It's both and. The Bible teaches election, predestination, and the free will of man. And so I believe all of it. I will say this about predestination, by the way, while I'm on it. In the Bible, the word predestinate or predestined is only used as it pertains to Christians. We've been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. We've been predestined to be uh, adopted into God's family. We've been, there's not a verse in the Bible that says anybody has ever been predestined to sin and there's not a verse in the Bible that says anybody has ever been predestined to hell. And I'm going to come back to that part in a moment. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, notice what it says. Him, that is Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put him to death. So at the first part of that verse, the sovereignty of God. Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God, you know, God's sovereign here. God's doing this. Second part of the verse, you, Peter said, have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Think about this. It was God's will from eternity past for Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay for our sins. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This was the plan of God. And yet those who carried out that plan were guilty of sin. They sinned. They did the wrong thing. It's just that God overruled that and used what they did to accomplish His will for their life. And so all this leads to a much, much larger question. And this is the question sometimes a person will ask, and they may not ask it, but a person would think, are some people predestined to go to hell? And there's some who believe, yes, they are. They're born. They have no choice. They were predestined to go to hell. And I want to say at this point, friend, that is not right. No one has ever been predestined to go to hell. That is not God's will. That is not God's plan. And just like God would never predestine somebody to sin against their own will, God would never predestinate anybody to go to hell. God wants people saved, and God wants people to go to heaven. And so I've named the message today, I've titled the message, How Can We Better Understand Election and Predestination? Because it's in the Bible. How can we better understand? Now, the implication of the way I've worded that question means that we can't fully understand it. I said, how can we better understand it? I don't believe we'll ever understand election, predestination, and the free will of man fully till we get to heaven. Then we'll know everything. But there are a lot of things I don't understand. I don't understand the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God who reveals himself in three persons, and yet 
he's three people at all the same time. He, he, when he was the son, he didn't cease being the father. And when he's the spirit, he didn't cease being the son. You've got one God in three persons. Someone that says, if you deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. If you try to understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. I don't understand the Trinity, but I believe it. I don't understand my microwave at home, but I use it all the time. I don't understand this mic- microphone. I don't understand it, but I use it. I don't understand election. I don't understand predestination. And I'm not so proud. I'm not ashamed to stand up here in front of a congregation twice on a Sunday morning and people watching from wherever they're watching all over everywhere and say, I don't understand everything about predestination and election. Friend, I don't understand everything about God, the Bible, and life. But you know what? I'm glad I can't crack the mind of God. If I understood everything about God, then God wouldn't be any smarter than I am. I'm glad I have a God that I say I can't understand. I'm glad when I read in Isaiah chapter 58 where God says, My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I'm glad I can just accept that and say, You know what? I can believe things even if I can't understand things. So let's think about what we can understand, and hopefully this will be helpful to you. Now, what do we know about election, predestination, and the free will of man? Number one, we know. We don't have to wonder about this. We know that God wants everyone to be saved. That is the will of God. And we know that. We start with the Scripture. Scripture alone. And the Scripture makes that very clear. Let's look at a couple of verses. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, notice what it says. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is God's desire for everybody to be saved. It can't get any clearer than that. A similar verse, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that, how many? Say it again. Say it again. But that all should come to repentance. That is the will of God. It is God's will for everybody to be saved. That's why God would never predestine somebody to go to hell. That would be against his will. That wouldn't even make sense. That would not be consistent with his character or with his word. A second thing we know is this. Anybody who wants to be saved can be saved. Sometime a person will think, well, I don't know if whether or not I can get saved. I don't know whether or not I'm in the elect. And somebody got in their head on that. And somebody's tried to teach them stuff that is, is over all of our heads, and they confused them. Friend, listen to me. Anybody who wants to be saved can be saved. Now, we're going to look at four verses on the screen. I preached out of the New King James, but these verses we're going to look at come from the Old King James. And the reason is, in the New King James, in the modern translations, it uses the word whoever. But the Old King James says whosoever. And I'm just old school enough to like whosoever. I think it sounds cool. So let's look at these verses. And when we come to the word whosoever, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to point to you and you say it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's look at the next verse. Very similar. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Next verse says the same thing. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't say for the elect, for a certain few, 
For this one, but not that one. No, for whosoever. And then one other verse. This is at the end of the Bible. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. And so I love those verses because what it does for me as a Christian and as a preacher of the gospel, it enables me to come out here on Sundays and to preach a whosoever will may come that anybody who wants to be saved can be saved. Are you a whosoever like John was just speaking about? Do you need to call on the Lord to be saved? Why don't you pray with me now? Dear Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. Right now, I ask you to come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. In your name I pray, amen. For those of you who have just prayed to receive Christ as your Savior today, please let us know by sending an email to info at peacebybelieving.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.